when we come to uh, Daniel chapter 5, what we have demonstrated is God's rule over Gentile defenses. God's rule over Gentile defenses demonstrated, chapter 5. And we start out with what is called Belshazzar's Feast. Belshazzar's Feast. Belshazzar was a co-regent with his father, Nabonidus. Nabonidus was king as Belshazzar was growing up, but there was a revolt against Babylonian rule uh, over in the western part of the Babylonian kingdom, and so Nabonidus took the Babylonian soldiers over there to crush that, and he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to be co-regent while he was gone. And after a while, after Nabonidus crushed that revolt, he loved that area so much more than back in Babylon, he decided to settle down there for the rest of his life. And so now Belshazzar is really the one making the decisions and everything for the Babylonian kingdom. Uh, Belshazzar had a great feast on one particular night for 1,000 of the Babylonian nobles. They'd all come in from all over the Babylonian kingdom and were inside the city there, and they had this great feast that night. Now, usually at such occasions, the king would sit on a separate table on an elevated platform so that everybody there could watch the king and what he was doing. And uh, it appears that a drinking bout of wine was going on with all the people assembled to see which man could drink everything and still hold his own without collapsing underneath the table and all the rest. After a while... Belshazzar commanded that the sacred vessels that King Nebuchadnezzar, who was already dead by this time, he commanded that the sacred vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from God's temple in Jerusalem and put in the temple of the chief Babylonian god Marduk, he ordered that those sacred vessels of the God of Israel be brought into the feast as drinking vessels. They were going to get drunk, drinking out of God's vessels, and for him, his nobles, his wives, and concubines. Now, back in Babylonian times, concubines were probably there for a sexual orgy. That when these men were going to get three sheets in the wind, you know, after drinking all the wine and getting drunk, there was going to be a sexual orgy going on there. Now, there couldn't have been a more horrible way of degrading the sacred vessels of the god who was opposed to drunkenness and sexual orgies. Now here's a question. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered areas, he took other countries' gods' vessels from their temples and put them in Marduk's temple. Well, well, it wasn't just Israel's that were put there. He got them from other countries as well. Why would he zero in on gods, the gods Israel's, and not others being brought in there to dishonor the God of Israel. That was his purpose, to totally dishonor the God of Israel. Well, again, there's historical background that gives uh, some indications of this. First, as a boy, Belshazzar had association with the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar. He grew up, maybe it was even within the Babylonian uh, places and everything where King Nebuchadnezzar would be. This indicates that he knew about God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar, how God had humiliated Nebuchadnezzar. It was the God of Israel that did that. 
He must have heard about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image in which the God of Israel revealed that eventually Babylon would be conquered by a partnership empire, namely Medo-Persia. Must have known about that dream that was recorded back there in in the book of Daniel in chapter 2. And also that it indicated that obviously uh, the capital city of Babylon would fall to the Medo-Persians, to the Medo-Persians. Now that's one thing. He knew all that background. The second thing is this. It's a historic fact, the ancient records indicate that, that the Medo-Persian troops under King Cyrus had conquered, already conquered, all the areas around the city of Babylon as much as four months before the night of Belshazzar's feast. So now... The capital city of Babylon was completely surrounded by the Medo-Persian troops under King Cyrus on the very night that they had this drunken feast to dishonor the God of Israel. And so on that night, Belshazzar's feast, the people whom God had foretold would take Babylon were already encamped outside the city walls of the capital city. And they'd been out there for about four months trying to figure out how can we get inside that city and conquer it and all the rest. Third thing, Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw from chapter 4, had made the city so impregnable that the Babylonians uh, thought that no force could conquer it. No force would be able to conquer it. That thick outer wall that couldn't be penetrated by battering rams and all the fortress towers and ramparts and the second wall and the space in between, they knew would be absolute suicide for soldiers to side, the Medo-Persian soldiers to scale those walls. Now, here's another interesting thing, but if you're surrounded, you're cut off from the outside world for months, you have to have a constant water supply to survive inside that city. Well, they'd already solved that. Nebuchadnezzar built the walls over top the Euphrates River. It was always running right through the city. They had a constant water supply. In addition, you'd have to have a complete food supply to support the large population of this great capital city to hold out for months and months and months. Ancient records indicate they'd already stored up food to supply the total population of that city for more than 20 years. They were so convinced their city was impregnable to any Gentile force, let those soldiers sit out there and rot for 20 years. We don't have to care. They can't get into us. We've got all the water we need. We've got all the food to need. We'll just hold out for 20 years until they give up and go back home. They were so confident of that. And so what Belshazzar was doing was, I guess, by asking for the sacred vessels of the God of Israel, who had foretold in the dream in chapter 2 that uh, Babylon would be conquered by the next great Gentile world empire, Medo-Persia, they decided it's almost our way of thumbing our nose at the God of Israel and say, it doesn't matter what you've said. We are so impregnable, even you can't cause us to fall. And what's interesting, so they just probably laughed at the siege of the Medo-Persians against their city. And so he decided to desecrate God's sacred vessels to show his contempt of God's prophecy concerning the fall of Babylon. Well, as you probably know, all of a sudden, while all this drunken revelry was going on, there was a huge hand not attached to a body that appeared 
up along one of the walls of the banquet hall. And with a finger, it wrote several words, several words. Mena, mena, twice. Mena, mena, tekel, euphorson. Mena, mena, tekel, euphorson. And the biblical account said that when Belshazzar saw that, he grew pale. The color of his face just drained out of his face. He was mentally disturbed. His hip joints went slack. And as a result, his knees were literally knocking together. He was scared to death out of this strange thing that happened that nobody had ever seen before in all their lives. Right away, he yells for the the Babylonian wise men. Come in, you know, interpret for us. (laughs) And once again, they failed. They couldn't read the writing. They couldn't interpret it. And this so greatly uh, alarmed Belshazzar and his perplexed nobles. They were literally falling apart the seams emotionally. And the queen mother, many feel this was probably the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. She continued living years after Nebuchadnezzar died. She came in and told Belshazzar, get Daniel. Your father, your ancestor, he had to cry... Cry, uh, call for Daniel when the other wise men couldn't interpret dreams and everything else for him. Get him. And so Daniel was brought in. And this is what Daniel interpreted. The word mena meant numbered. Numbered. And what it signified is God had numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom. God had numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom and had reckoned that those days had come to their end. And that was written twice to emphasize that uh, to Belshazzar and the nobles there, the certainty of the end of the kingdom of Babylon. The word tekel meant weighed, you know, when you weigh something to see how much it weighs and everything. And that was God's message saying to Belshazzar, your moral worth, your moral worth has been weighed in the balances and found to be totally deficient. You are morally deficient You're not fit to continue ruling over a kingdom such as Babylon. And the word euphorsim meant broken or divided, broken or divided. And this was God's way of saying, through that term, God had determined to shatter Belshazzar's kingdom and give it to Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia. Now, how are the Medo-Persians going to get into that city? Well, they noticed the Euphrates River running underneath the two walls, underneath the two walls. Now, the Babylonians had devised a system whereby when they wanted to, they could uh, drop down into the Euphrates River from the walls like wrought iron fencing. And that way nobody could get in, you know, even coming through the channel. But for some reason, nobody understands that those grates were up inside the wall on this particular night. And so when King Cyrus noticed all this, when Belshazzar and his nobles were doing this drunken debauched scene there in the banquet hall, King Cyrus orders the troops, jump down, that what they did was they had, for several days, uh, dug a side, almost channel to the side, so that they could put in like a ready-made dam and divert the water off of that side channel, and so that the water underneath the walls would be very low. And so when that happened, he gave the, Cyrus gave the command for his soldiers to jump down in there, 
walk underneath the walls into the city. And that's what they did. And it was so, so caught the Babylonians by surprise, they had no means whatsoever of stopping this from taking place. And Cyrus, apparently they knew about the banquet was going on that night, ordered some of his troops to go immediately to the banquet hall. And they did, and according to ancient records, when Belshazzar saw them coming and knew what was happening, he stood up, drew his sword, and they just went up and ran him through and killed him right there on the spot. And so in one night's time, the date was October 13, 539 B.C., the capital city of Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. Fell to the Medo-Persians. Interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 47, verse 9, chapter 47, verse 9, years before this, God foretold Babylon would fall in one day's time. One day's time. And that's what had happened. October 13, 539 B.C. Now, King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, divided his enormous empire into 20 provinces, into 20 provinces. And he appointed a governor to rule each province, a governor to rule each province. And each province formerly had been an independent kingdom on its own. So now, uh, each governor he placed there as a king to help him rule as sub-kings under him as the ultimate king, help him administer his Medo-Persian rule over all these other kingdoms that they had conquered. One of those sub-kings he appointed was Darius, D-A-R-I-U-S, D-A-R-I-U-S, also known as ancient uh, records as Guberu, Guberu. And so he was appointed by King Cyrus to be the sub-king over the former kingdom of Babylon, the former kingdom of Babylon, now that they'd conquered Babylon. And so that gives us the background for chapter 6, chapter 6 of Daniel, where we have God's rule over Gentile law demonstrated. God's rule over Gentile law demonstrated. Darius appointed 120 officials under him. He appointed 120 officials under him to help him govern the former kingdom of Babylon, the former kingdom of Babylon. He appointed three men to be the heads over the 120 officials. Daniel was one of those three men to be in charge of the 120 officials under Darius' rule. God enabled Daniel to perform so much better than the other heads and officials that through time, Darius planned to make Daniel superior over all the other officials within the kingdom. Well, that made the other heads and officials jealous of Daniel's favor with Darius. And so the other officials began to plot a way to get rid of Daniel and removed from this office that Darius had appointed him to. They very carefully examined Daniel's government records to see if they could find anything, you know, that he did wrong that they could use against him to get him thrown out of that office. But (laughs) they couldn't find a thing that he'd done wrong. So they decided the only thing we can use against him is his religion. They knew he was a deeply religious man, worshiped the God of Israel, Yahweh or Jehovah. So they decided we're going to use Daniel's devotion to the God of Israel to get him removed from this position. They told Darius, now here they lied, 
they told Darius that all his officials under him had made the following unanimous decision together. That was a lie because Daniel wasn't in on that decision. But they told Darius that all the officials had made the following unanimous decision together. And here was the decision, that Darius should pass and enforce a decree. Darius should pass and enforce a decree that anyone who would make a religious request of, anyone who would make a religious request of any god or man except Darius for 30 days should be cast into the lion's den. If anybody under your domain makes uh, a religious request of any god or any man except you for 30 days, that person should be cast into the lion's den. And they persuaded Darius, they convinced him of that, they persuaded him to personally sign that written document into decree, into decree for 30 days. Now, why this? It's because of a unique system of law that Medo-Persia had. Medo-Persian law said, once an official decree was signed into effect, no one, including the king himself, could revoke it. If you get the king to sign this into effect, nobody, not even the king who signed it into effect, could revoke it. That was a unique feature of Medo-Persian law. Now, although Daniel knew about the decree, he didn't change his spiritual practices. He continued to pray three times a day near the open window of his dwelling. Near the open window of his dwelling. His enemies stood outside. They heard him praying to the God of Israel. So they rushed to Darius. They told him that Daniel was violating his decree. Darius was so disturbed when he learned that. He realized he'd been duped into a trap against his favorite official. He was so disturbed that he kept trying to deliver Daniel from being thrown in the lion's den until sunset. Now, why until sunset? Well, again, according to ancient records, the, the Medo-Persian law overruled his attempts. It required the punishment of anybody who violated that law. It required the punishment to be executed on the evening of the day in which the accusation was made. The accusation was delivered on this day the punishment had to be administered against the one who violated it by that evening, by that evening. And he knew he was bound by the Medo-Persian law. Even he, as the one that signed it in effect, couldn't reverse that against Daniel. So Daniel was cast into the lion's den, and a stone was laid over the opening of the den and sealed with the signet rings of the king and the nobles so that nothing could be changed. You know, let Daniel out in a hurry before the lions could get to him. And so Darius went to his palace, and he spent the whole night without sleep, fasting. He couldn't sleep. He, he wouldn't allow any entertainment. Although he was so upset over how he'd been duped into following into their trap to get rid of his favorite official. So at the crack of dawn, the next morning, Darius rushed to the den, yelled in, asked Daniel if his God, it's interesting, Daniel, has your God been able to deliver you from the lions? <laughs> Imagine he stood there and hoping he didn't hear a loud burp from a satisfied lion. 
what he heard was Daniel's request. He said, okay, <laughs> you know, live forever. <laughs> you try to eliminate, you live forever. God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouths, and the lions did not hurt me whatsoever. So Darius immediately had Daniel brought up from the den. I mean, he'd fulfilled the law and his requirement. He had Daniel brought up from the den. Then, what he did to the officials, he commanded the officials who duped him into signing that into effect against Daniel, the officials, their wives, and their children to be thrown into the lion's den. And the Bible says before they even hit the bottom of that den, the lions were attacking them and tearing them to shreds. Tearing to shreds. God's sovereign rule over Gentile law. Over Gentile law. Again, demonstrating how great he is. Now, when we come to chapter 7, and we're going to get into, uh, again, quite a bit of the future things, as we did some with chapter 2, once again, we have God's rule over Gentile empires demonstrated again. Demonstrated again. Daniel had a dream in 553 B.C. So now Daniel had a dream from God, 553 B.C. And that took place between the events of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Took place between the events of chapter 4 and chapter 5. The content of the dream was this, a storm-tossed sea, a storm-tossed sea that represented the world of nations in turmoil the world of nations in turmoil. There were four beasts, four wild animals that came up one after the other in succession out of that disturbed sea. They represented four Gentile kingdoms, four Gentile kingdoms that would rise to power in order one after the other from the sea, from the sea. And those four beasts paralleled the parts of the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 2. The first beast was a lion with eagle's wings on its back, eagle's wings on its back. That was parallel to the head of gold in the image of chapter 2. Interestingly, sculptures of huge winged lions stood at entrances to the Babylonian royal palaces in the city of Babylon, when it was still the dominant power upon planet Earth. And it signified Babylon's swift conquest of many peoples during the first part of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. During the first part of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he quickly conquered more and more different nations and their people. But after a while, as Daniel watched this winged lion, the wings were plucked off of the back of the lion. And the lion was made to stand upright like a human being, and a human heart was put inside that lion. Human heart put inside that lion. And what this uh, signified was this. After God humbled Nebuchadnezzar with lycanthropy, acting like a wild animal, he and his kingdom stopped conquering other people and became more humane in their treatment of other people. This was God's way of indicating here 
that once he dealt effectively with Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar got the message, the God of Israel is the one who sets up, tears down rulers and kingdoms. Once he did that, God gave him, in essence, a humane heart. He stopped conquering, became much more humane in dealing with the people that were under his rule. God foretelling this ahead of time. Now, the second beast that came out of the sea was a lopsided bear, a bear with one side raised up higher than the other at everything. Uh, that was parallel to the two arms and one chest of silver in the chapter 2 image that Daniel interpreted for Nebuchadnezzar. And that represented the same kingdom, Medo-Persia, as the two arms and, and one chest of silver in chapter 2, Medo-Persia. What's interesting is this. Uh, bears in that part of the world in ancient times were quite a bit larger than lions. And so God was accurately portraying the Medo-Persian kingdom that way because the Medo-Persian kingdom swallowed up not only the Babylonian kingdom but several other kings as well, became much, much larger than the Babylonian kingdom. But why have the bear lopsided, one side higher than the other? Keep in mind again, just as with the, the two arms coming together to war, form one chest in chapter 2, this was a partnership empire, the Medes and the Persians. And after a while, the Persians gained the ascendancy of authority over the Medes. And so God was foretelling there ahead of time that after a while, the Persians would become the dominant power of the two powers merged together there for the Medo-Persian kingdom. And uh, what's also interesting, though, is that bears were much slower than lions. I mean, they can, they can be pretty fast, but they're much slower, slower than a lion uh, running at full tilt. And so it's interesting, historically, Medo-Persia, it was much larger than Babylon, but its armies were so huge, they moved very slowly, very slowly. Again, God indicating that. Now, the bear had three ribs in its mouth, indicating it swallowed three kinds of life. And the implication is this, and it's true, Medo-Persia conquered three other kingdoms. One was Babylon, as we already saw. Then Lydia, remember King Midas, that they said everything he touched turned to gold? There was a, a kingdom called Lydia, kind of north of Israel and everything. Medo-Persia conquered that. Medo-Persia also conquered Egypt. So that the three ribs in the mouth of the bear symbolize these three other Gentile kingdoms that Medo-Persia would conquer and assimilate into its kingdom. That was fulfilled. Babylon, for example, was conquered in 539 B.C., as we just saw the last hour, 539 B.C. Medo-Persia now has conquered Babylon, assimilated Babylon into itself. The third beast that came out of the sea, Storm-tossed Sea, was a leopard with four wings and four heads. A leopard with four wings on its back and four heads uh, on its body. This was parallel to the body and thighs of bronze in the chapter 2 image. And again, it symbolized the Grecian kingdom, the Grecian kingdom that would conquer the Medo-Persian kingdom. Now, 
Four wings on a leopard were designed to emphasize swiftness of movement, swiftness of movement. Some leopards, when they're running full tilt, have been clocked at running 70-some miles per hour, just without wings. But if two wings on the back of a lion for Babylon emphasize swiftness of movement, four wings on the back of a leopard really emphasize quickness of movement. And that was, that was foretelling ahead of time the conquest of Medo-Persia by Greece under the leadership of Alexander the Great. His troops could move very rapidly, very rapidly, and catch the Medo-Persian troops totally by surprise. Usually, he caused his soldiers to even march all night long in order to attack the Medo-Persians while they're asleep in their tents in the morning. And that's why, with a much smaller army, he was able to overwhelm these huge Medo-Persian armies over and over and over again. Very swift movement. But then it had four heads. And again, as we saw with the image in in Daniel chapter 2, when Alexander the Great died, his four leading generals subdivided his Grecian kingdom into four divisions, into four divisions. And that's what's being symbolized here by the four heads on the leopard for the Grecian kingdom. The fourth beast that came out of the storm-tossed sea in Daniel's uh, dream, we have to call a nondescript beast, nondescript. It was so ferocious and terrifying that there was no animal on the face of the earth that could represent it in in that way whatsoever. Uh, So this was parallel to the legs of iron and feet and the toes of iron and clay of the image of chapter 2. And this was referring to the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. And the ancient Roman Empire was so ferocious and terrifying that it was able to uh, run over just about every enemy that uh, was confronted with, at least for a good many centuries, a good many centuries. And that, uh, with the emphasis of overwhelming destructive power, The legs of iron described ancient Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire. And as we saw earlier, that conquered Greece in 146 B.C., 146 B.C. But in this uh, this dream that Daniel has here about the empire, it presents three stages of the Roman Empire, three stages of the Roman Empire. The first stage is the ancient Roman Empire, the ancient Roman Empire. The second stage is the ten-horn stage, the ten-horn stage, because as Daniel was watching uh, this beast that came out of the sea, it had ten horns on its head, ten horns on its its head. That was the ten-horn stage. But then, as he's watching those ten horns, after a while, an eleventh little horn rises to power from within that revived Roman Empire, and that was called the little horn stage, as we're going to see, that little horn is the Antichrist, the Antichrist. And that becomes obvious as Daniel is given the interpretation of of this particular dream. And that little horn does three things, according to Daniel chapter 7. When he comes to power, he will blaspheme the true and the living God. He's going to blaspheme the true and the living God. Second thing he's going to do, he's going to wage war against the saints. 
for three and a half years, for a time, times and half a time, is going to wage war against the saints. This is going to be the future revived Roman Empire that he eventually is going to rise up through and gain control. And the third thing we're told he will do when he comes to power, he will try to alter times and law, try to change time segments. How in the world he's going to try to do that, we don't know. Try to change time segments, but also change law, even natural law, going to try to change that if he can. And Daniel's very clearly told that in, uh, as an angel comes to interpret uh, this part of the dream to him. And uh, it's interesting, in chapter 7, as the, the little horn, the Antichrist, rises to power, he will overthrow or subdue three of the original kings who have kind of coexisted together for the purpose of influence of the revived Roman Empire. So as he rises to power from the, the head of this beast, he will overthrow three of the original ten kings and thereby gain control of this future revived Roman Empire. This future revived Roman Empire. But then, in Daniel's dream, after he looks at these beasts coming out of the sea, all of a sudden, the dream shifts to a heavenly scene. If you have your Bibles with you, you may want to turn to this. In Daniel chapter 7, and we'll look first at verses 9 through 14, and then verses 26 through 28. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, and verses 26 through 28. In verse 9, Daniel says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. And the Ancient of Days did sit, this is God upon the throne, whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. He'd be given a vision of heaven and God sitting upon the throne. Now notice, verse 10, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. These are angels. Angels. Thousands times thousands. Uh, if you were to go to uh, Revelation chapter 5, John tells us when he was given a vision of heaven, he saw this gigantic multitude of angels around the throne of God in heaven. And in the Greek language, he indicates that they were 10,000s plural times 10,000s plural. You multiply one 10,000 plus another, you have like 100 million. Millions and millions and millions of angels around the throne of God in heaven, holy angels. Maybe billions of them to serve God. And that's what Daniel's seeing now here in, in this revelation God gives to him of that heavenly courtroom scene. In verse 10, the judgment was set. This is where God now is getting ready to judge the last form of Gentile world dominion here upon planet Earth. And the books were opened. I've taken the books recording the deeds and everything that all these rulers and kingdoms did and everything contrary to the true and the living God. Verse 11, I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, 
I beheld even till the beast was slain. The beast, Revelation 13, is the Antichrist. The Antichrist. Actually now here, uh, probably referring to the fourth beast that comes out in its final form, the last great form of Gentile world empire and everything, the revived Roman Empire, that's going to be destroyed. His body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerned the rest of the beasts, the winged lion, the winged leopard, the bear, and all the rest, they had their division taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season of time. What he's saying here is, when uh, you had Babylon as the first beast, it was conquered by Medo-Persia, but it wasn't wiped off the map. It was simply absorbed into Medo-Persian kingdoms so that the Babylonians continued to exist. They weren't wiped off. They weren't totally eliminated, assassinated from planet Earth. They continued on as part of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then when Greece conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander didn't have all the people of Medo-Persia killed. That, that kingdom continued to exist, but now as part of the Grecian kingdom within it. It wasn't uh, eliminated. Then, when Rome conquered the Grecian kingdom of Alexander the Great, it didn't eliminate all the Greeks and other people of that kingdom. It simply assimilated them into the Roman kingdom. So what he's saying is, these first several kingdoms, although they're going to be conquered and consumed by another kingdom, will continue to exist within that conquering kingdom. But when it comes to this final kingdom, the revived Roman Empire in its form, it's not going to be assimilated into the next kingdom, which is God's kingdom. It's going to be totally obliterated with its ultimate ruler, the Antichrist, from the face of the earth. From the face of the earth is what he's saying here. So he says, as concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man in the Bible? The Lord Jesus, the Messiah. One like the Son of Man came with clouds of heaven. Came with clouds of heaven. And came to the Ancient of Days. He walks up to God the Father sitting upon the throne. And they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. God the Father turns over the rule of all the kingdoms of the world to his son, the Lord Jesus. There were given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. For a thousand years on this present earth and throughout eternity on the new eternal earth. This kingdom, once it's established, will never be obliterated and replaced by another, is the idea here. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Then, if you would please, go over to verses 26 or 28. But the judgment shall sit. It's, it's described here earlier the ten kings, the revived Roman Empire. And then the little horn, the Antichrist, who gains control of that, and he blasphemes the true and the living God. He tries to change time periods 
and natural laws and everything like that. And it says here, verse 25, he shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, think to change times and laws, they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. In Daniel, that's three and a half years. Literally, one time, two times, plus a half a time, three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation period. There are implications in Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 13, that in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period, Satan is going to take possession of the Antichrist in the middle. And we're told that Antichrist, I take it by Satan, will be given power to continue for another 42 months. That's three and one-half years, three and one-half years, which is exactly what it's saying here. And it's told there that he's going to, it's told there as well that the Antichrist, once Satan takes possession, he's going to wage war against the saints. People who get saved during the tribulation period going to try to eliminate all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and in the true and the living God during the second half of the tribulation period. And he's going to do that, but the judgment shall sit, they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Gentile rule is going to come to an end. And the last great form of it will be the Antichrist. And particularly the second half of that last seven years, when Satan takes control of that man. And he becomes a great blasphemer against the true and the living God and wants to be worshipped as God himself and all the rest. He's going to go after everybody upon planet Earth who's placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Because Revelation uh, chapter 7 makes it very clear that there will be great numbers of people get saved during the tribulation period. And he's going to wage war against those tribulation saints and try to obliterate them from the face of the earth throughout the entire second half of the seven-year tribulation period. He's also going to try to eliminate Israel as well. And we're going to see about that when we get into to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. To obliterate Israel uh, from the face of the earth altogether during the second half of it. And as a result of Satan taking control of him. And so what is being told here, <clears throat> you know, verse 17, Daniel is wondering about the interpretation of this dream. These beasts coming up out of the sea. Verse 17 He's told, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I would know the truth of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. Exceeding dreadful, his teeth were of iron, his nails of brass, which devoured broken pieces, stamped the residue with his feet. Also wanted to know, what about the ten horns that are on the head of this fourth beast? And of the other which came up, the little horn that came up after him, before whom three fell, which says that as the Antichrist, the little horn, rises to power within the revived Roman Empire, which is a, a ten-division federation with ten equal co-rulers, as he rises to power, he'll overthrow three of the original of those co-rulers, and thereby gain controlling authority over that future revived Roman Empire. 
And of the ten horns were in his head, of the other which came up, before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes, and a mouth that spoke very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld, and the same horn made war with the saints, and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. He's making it very clear. The last form of the Roman Empire is yet to come. And initially, it will consist of a federation of ten divisions federated together for influence and power here upon planet Earth. And uh, ten equal co-rulers, co-ruling at the same time. But after a while, there's going to be an eleventh horn, the little horn, rise to power from within that revived Roman Empire. And as he does, he will subdue, overthrow three of the original ten rulers and thereby gain authority over that revived Roman Empire. And uh, we're going to see it when we get uh, like into chapter 9 and some of the other chapters and everything, uh, some of the things he's going to do, some of the things this man is going to do uh, in the future. And going to go after Israel with a vengeance, as we're going to see. He's also going to go after those who get saved during the tribulation period and try to eliminate their witness for God here upon uh, planet Earth. Now, so that, what we're... Uh, being portrayed here will be the end of Gentile rule over planet Earth. You know, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, calls Jesus the last Adam, not the second Adam, the last Adam, the last Adam. What's behind that? When you look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, when God created man, he gave man dominion over this entire earthly province of God's universal kingdom. He gave that to the first Adam. That tells us the original form of government that God established upon planet Earth was a theocracy. That word means God rule. But a theocracy is a form of government in which God is the king, but he has a representative administering his rule the way he wants it administered over what belongs to God. So God was setting up a theocracy. When he gave Adam dominion over planet Earth, he was appointing him to be God's representative here upon planet Earth. And it was, it was Adam's responsibility, with God as the king, to administer God's rule over our planet exactly the way God intended it to be ruled. But then Satan enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3. And the Bible reveals angels have the ability to take upon themselves any form that they want to to carry out a task. In this instance, Satan took upon himself the deceptive form of a serpent. How do we know Satan was the serpent? Well, Revelation 20 calls Satan that serpent of old. Another verse in Revelation calls Satan that serpent of old. Satan persuaded the first Adam to join him in his revolt against God. And one of the tragic consequences of Adam doing that, Satan thereby usurped the rule of the world system away from God. 
And the Bible reveals that ever since the fall of man, Satan and his forces have been dominating, controlling the world system. And that's why the mess is in the world is in today, right now. And to show you that, when you look at Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, one of the temptations that Satan directed toward Jesus was this. He took him to a high mountain, and a visionary form caused all the kingdoms of the world system to pass before the Lord Jesus. Then he said to Jesus, all this and the glory of it, I have authority to turn over to whom I wish. And he told Jesus why he had the authority to turn over the rule of the world system to anybody who wished. He said, literally, it has been handed over to me. Who handed over the rule of the world system to God's enemy, Satan? The first Adam did it. And as a result, the whole human race fell in the first Adam, the first Adam. Romans 5, wherefore is by one man sin of the world and death by sin, so death pass upon all because all sinned, all sinned. One of the main reasons, out of two major reasons, for God's Son to become incarnated in human flesh. The first reason was so that in his first coming, he could go to the cross of Calvary as our substitute and die in our place and pay in full the penalty of our sins. So through faith in him, we could have God's gift of eternal life. But the second reason why the incarnation of God's Son in in human flesh was so essential was so that at his second coming, he returns as the last Adam to now reinstitute what God set up with the first Adam, but now be faithful to reinstitute God's sovereign rule over the whole world system throughout a thousand years on our present planet Earth and then throughout eternity on the new eternal Earth. That's why he's called the last Adam. And that's what's being foretold here. Here's the heavenly courtroom scene where God's ready to pour out judgment upon Gentile world dominion in its latest form under the rule of an apostate Gentile called the Antichrist. And the Son of Man appears in that heavenly courtroom scene. And God turns over to him the authority... (coughs) to administer God's rule as the last Adam upon our present planet throughout the last thousand years of our present Earth's history. And that's what he's talking about here. And when Jesus comes out of heaven, and the parallel to this in the New Testament is Revelation chapter 19, where John records a preview of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. He sees Jesus coming back to wage war, is what we're told. He's coming back as a warrior. Well, the wage war against him. Well, pitted against him later in Revelation 19, verse 19, are the Antichrist, the false prophet, Satan, the rulers of all the kings of the world, gathered together to wage war against Jesus. This is Satan's last stand. He doesn't dare allow Jesus to get back here because he knows if he does, he'll be crushed at his rule over the world system of being taken away. And what we see is Jesus, by speaking authoritative words of God, will have the Antichrist removed, cast into the eternal lake of fire where he's tormented forever, day and night, throughout eternity. The false prophet who leads people in the worship of the Antichrist at that time, cast into the eternal lake of fire forever, 
in torment. And then he kills all the soldiers and leaders of the nation of the world that are gathered there against Jesus in the land of Israel for when he comes down to planet Earth to step down on the Mount of Olives. He kills those rulers and armed forces. This is Armageddon upon planet Earth. And then Jesus has Satan bound, Revelation 20, with a chain and cast into the abyss, the bottomless pit, where he's held as the prisoner of God for the next 1,000 years. Next 1,000 years. Then in Revelation uh, 20, verses 4 and following, Old Testament saints who died during the tribulation period and get resurrected from the dead. And Jesus sets up the 1,000-year millennial kingdom rule of God upon this present planet. And he and the tribulation saints will reign over planet Earth on behalf of God. Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, says the church saints, we shall reign with Christ too. So here you have resurrected tribulation saints, glorified bodies, they're sinlessly perfect. We're going to come back with Christ at his second coming to planet Earth, and we are sinlessly perfect, glorified. Can you imagine a government where all the politicians are sinlessly perfect and can't be corrupted? Lord, hasten that day. How much we need this. But this is what's being portrayed here. In Daniel chapter 7, God turns over the rule of the earth to the last Adam and tells him, get rid of Antichrist and the last form of Gentile world dominion from planet earth and restore my theocracy back to this planet again as I intended it to have from the day I created the first Adam and gave him that rule over the world system as my representative. Okay, we take another break and we'll come back and get into chapters 8 through 12.